Father, we pray that you would now meet us as we feast on the meat of your word. And we pray that it would not be light in our hearts. We pray as we read these words that we would receive them as your words for that is what they are and that we would have all the proper reverence and worship as we do so. And would you conform us to what your word has to press upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 5 and verse 19. Do have your Bibles open. I encourage you in physical form or on your phone because my words mean nothing unless it's straight from the text. John chapter 5 and verse 19. There's an episode of Leave it to Beaver where Beaver finds himself in trouble for doing something he shouldn't have done when no one was around. And his parents come to him and ask him, Beaver, did you think that because no one was there that no one knew? And Beaver replied, well, no one was there. To which his parents asked again, did you think because no one was there that no one knew? And he said, oh, you mean God was there. Isn't it amazing that even TV shows used to assume the reality of God? But increasingly, it's becoming more and more popular in our society to question the reality of God. Now, this is not new to mankind. Individuals have been questioning for years God, life's biggest spiritual concerns, and such things like these. Well, on the biggest day of the Christian calendar, our text of study this morning addresses some of life's biggest questions about the reality of God. And it's no coincidence that on Easter, God would have you consider through this text today eternity-shaping questions of Him. And if you think that, well, I'm just one person kind of blending in, God would have his word press upon you today. Where I'm going to begin reading today, Jesus is going to find himself in controversy. To catch you up on the context here, he's just upset the religious leaders of his day and mainly he has upset them because he has called himself son, equating himself with God. And now, because he's done that, they want to kill him. And now that they want to kill him, what will Jesus say? Will he defend himself? Will he attempt to de-escalate the situation like, everybody just, just calm down, it's no big deal, just reason with me. Or maybe he'll try to soften his claim 
I didn't really mean what you think I said. No, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't de-escalate. He doesn't soften. What we're going to see from Jesus is he doubles down. He takes his hand and he, he squeezes a sore spot for them. I love how Jesus interacts with people. He lovingly and graciously knows just where to push the sore spot. So where we're going to start reading is beginning with the words of Jesus as he makes more divine claims about himself. He's claimed to be God. They're wanting to kill him. And this is what he says next. John chapter 5 beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, is, he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I want to direct your attention to see the outline of this text comes in three clear divisions. And the three clear divisions that come in the text are introduced by the words of Jesus when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. So if you look at the beginning of verse 19, at the beginning of verse 24, at the beginning of verse 25, you'll see they all begin with those important words. Truly, truly, I so say to you. This is a common phrase that Jesus would use when he wants his listeners to give maximum attention. It's kind of like when your mom used to say your first and middle name. <laughs> you know you better listen up. Three times Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And those three times will be the skeleton outline of this text. 
Three statements of listen up. Three points to the sermon. Our first point is this. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. You'll see this in verses 19 through 23. In that section, Jesus is going to give five direct statements to these religious leaders. And it's, it's crucial, crucially important that you catch the context that he is talking to people that want to kill him. And he gives them five direct statements to these leaders. And all the statements are meant to show that he is one with God. And each new statement that he gives, the gasp of unbelief from these religious leaders will only intensify with each statement. Their response would have been something kind of like this. Jesus makes a statement and they say, oh. And then he makes another statement and they say, oh. And then when he makes his final statement, they're going to say, oh. If they're upset because Jesus called God his own father, just wait until they hear what he says next. So, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. This is Jesus' first statement of divinity in this section. There's five. You'll keep track of them. First one, Jesus sees what the Father is doing. You can imagine what their response may have been. No, 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 just wait a minute. You're saying that you can see God? No, 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 no. We know what Moses said in Exodus 33 of God, where he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And you say you can see him? Come on. But Jesus says... I can only do what I see my Father doing. When Jesus says that the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, his point is not to say that he is somehow weaker without the Father. No, his point is he cannot be separated from the Father. He cannot do anything on his own accord apart from the Father, as though they are two independent gods acting separately from one another. Now what we see Scripture teaches of God is this. God is one. There's only one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yes, they are three distinct persons, but they are not three distinct gods. They are three persons in one God. They cannot be separated. They do not act independently from one another. Certainly they have their own roles, but never divided from each other. Now, if that's hard for you to wrap your mind around, one God, three persons, well, just join the rest of Christian history. And we're thinking on infinite God-sized truths with limited fallen human minds. 
But Jesus' point here is, I can only do what I see my Father doing because I'm one with Him. My work can't be divided from His work. I can do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see Him doing. And yes, I see the Father. But Jesus' oneness with God goes beyond merely seeing the Father's work. Jesus' second statement of divinity is this. Jesus does what the Father does. Look at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. You see here, Jesus pushes it even further. His first point emphasizes his seeing the Father. And now his point is, and what I see the Father do, I do as well. The connecting word in your text in verse 19, 4, makes the logic of this verse explain like this. The Son does not act on his own, but only what he sees the Father do. And the Son does what he sees because whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. His entire point is stressing, I can't be divided from the Father. I don't act by myself. I do what I see, and I do what I see because whatever the Father does, that's what I do. We are one. I see what the Father is doing and I do what the Father does. Now, this is quite a heavy Easter brunch for you. <laughs> We're going to see exactly where this hits in our hearts in just a moment. I see what the Father is doing and I do what the Father does. And they must think, huh, uh, that's some serious claims you got there, fella. I mean, if you heard someone say these things, you would likely say, well, what makes you so special? I mean, why would God share these things with you? And Jesus explains why in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son... And shows him all that he himself is doing. If these leaders question, why you? What's so great about you? Why do you get to see what the Father is doing? And why do you get to do what the Father does? Jesus' answer is, because the Father loves me. Now, this is a peculiar love that the Father gives to the Son. Notice it's a unique Trinitarian love that leads the Father in His love to then show the Son all that He's doing. Now let me explain to you why this would have been so egregious to these religious leaders. They know that God has His divine ways that mere man cannot look into. How many times have people asked where is God? What is God doing? Why would he allow this? These leaders know, Isaiah 55, 8, that God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. That God's ways are higher than man's ways. They know that there's a, a buffer between God and man that keeps mere man from being able to see all that God is doing. But now Jesus says, there's no buffer for me. 
Verse 20, the Father shows me all that He's doing. All of it. And were they to ask why, He says, verse 20, because He loves me. And the implication is with a particular love that's given to no one else in this way, not even you religious leaders, a love that allows me to see everything he's doing. Because I see what God does. I do what God does because God loves me as the only son of God. And you can almost hear the gasp from these religious leaders 21 centuries later. Jesus continues in verse 20. He pulls the tension even tighter. He says, And greater works than these will he show me so that you may marvel. <laughs> How much this must have offended these religious leaders? To hear Jesus say, God shows me all that he's doing and he's going to show me greater things that he's going to do. And where will they be? They'll be on the outside of the circle just marveling as mere spectators. And what are the greater things God's going to show Jesus? Verse 21 tells us. For, that's the connector, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is his third statement of divinity to them. Jesus has the power to raise the dead and give life as God. Now this statement is stunning to them because once again, Jesus is ascribing to himself that which only God can do in their minds. Now they know that God alone is the author of life. They know Deuteronomy 32, 39 where God says, There is no God beside me. I kill and I give life. But now Jesus says, Yes, yes, you know that God raises the dead and gives them life. But verse 21, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. You hear the direct statements from Jesus, I see as God, I do as God, I give life as God. And their eyes must be about to pop out the sockets of their skulls. <laughs> and yet, Jesus has two more statements for them and they intensify. Verse 22. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Wait a minute. This is judgment. We can't talk about judgment. Jesus doesn't judge. Uh, verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. His fourth statement of divinity, Jesus has authority as judge. Well, now, just wait a minute, they probably were thinking. We know all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis 18.25, that God, Yahweh, is the judge of all. There Genesis tells us, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Speaking of God, I mean, come on. But now Jesus says in verse 22, actually the Father's given me that authority. He judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
He has one more statement. And it's kind of like with the knife in their belly, Jesus turns it with his final point. It's the climactic one. He says in verse 22 that the Father has given him authority to judge. And look at verse 23. That, this is the reason. And I think it refers to all that he has said actually. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Unless these people think that they can just pick between the two like, well, I'll honor the Father. I'm not going to honor him. Jesus says in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is Jesus' fifth statement of divinity to them. Jesus deserves honor as God. Now put it all together. Here's where we put it all together. When Jesus says he sees all the Father does, they must think, well, that's bad, but at least he's not claiming to do what the Father does. To then Jesus says, all that the Father does, I do likewise. And they must think, well, you know, that's, that's terrible blasphemy. Like, don't, steer near, don't stand near hear him in a storm, but it's terrible blasphemy, but at least he didn't claim to give life as God does. To which Jesus says, and I have the power to give life. And they think, well, that's absurd. But at least he doesn't claim to control how life ends. To which Jesus says, God has given me final judgment as well. And right now they're fighting mad. And they may say, well, he can claim to see God and he can claim to do as God. He can claim to be giving life as God and he can claim to give final judgment as God. But he'll never be worshipped as God. To which he says, God has given me honor. And by the way, if you don't honor me, you don't really honor him. Friends, hear the statements of Jesus. Historical Jesus who walked the same earth we did. Do. Jesus sees as God, does as God, gives life as God, judges as God, and deserves to and deserves honor as God because he can't say it any clearer. He is God. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Now, none of you are like ready to kill me, at least coming forward right now. But oh, how controversial this is among world religions. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Are you kidding me? I was once in an Uber, and the driver and I were talking about spiritual things. If you think what I just said in the last, I don't know, 15 minutes, does this really apply? This is where it applies. We're riding in an Uber. The guy's driving. He's a Muslim. We're talking about spiritual things. And he's trying to assure me that he and I worship the same God. Everything's okay, my friend, he said. So I was trying to think, how can I assure him everything's not okay? So I asked him, do you worship Jesus? Now, 
believe Jesus, respect Jesus, love Jesus even, he can say, yes, yes, yes. Do you worship Jesus? And he said, oh, of course not. I said, here's the difference. I worship Jesus. Friends, if this is true, if Jesus is God, <laughs> and we believe he is, if you claim to know God while ignoring the person of Jesus, you don't know God. If the commands of Jesus hold no weight in your life, you don't love God. If you think you're headed to God apart from following the way of Jesus, you'll never reach him. If you say you follow God and yet you're walking in the opposite way of Christ, you're actually following the God of yourself. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. We turn to Jesus' second truly, truly statement. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If we learn from Jesus' first statement, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. Here's what we learn from his second truly, truly statement. If you want eternal life, believe the gospel. You see here in 24 that Jesus mentions eternal life now. And of course, the big question comes, the big question that everybody asks throughout history is, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus' words are simple. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is what he's saying. God sent his son Jesus to earth to preach a word of good news. Those who recognize what God has done in sending Jesus and those who embrace and trust the word that Jesus preaches of this good news, those have eternal life. Well, if eternal life comes to those who believe the message from Jesus, well then what is the message of good news? Well, in order to appreciate good news, you have to feel the weight of bad news. You have to feel the danger of it. If you almost fall off a cliff and somebody rescues you at the last second, you're thankful because you saw what could have happened. Ray Comfort is an evangelist who helps people feel the bad news by doing something like this. He says, let me ask you a question. Do you think you're a good person? And let's do the exercise. Just in your own mind, answer these questions I ask you. Do you think you're a good person? And most people say basically yes, especially as they consider themselves, compare themselves next to someone like Hitler. Yes, 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 I'm, I'm basically good. He says, okay, if you prove to be a good person, I'll give you $20. And they're like, okay. He says, how many lies have you told in your life? And he says, just go ahead, take a, take a guess. Just estimate. Maybe a thousand. What do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. Okay, um, have you ever stolen anything in your life? Even if it's something small, insignificant value. Uh, probably. 
What do you call someone who steals things? A thief? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Probably so. Oh, that's called blasphemy. Let's be honest in our own hearts here. Jesus says if you look after someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after someone? Sad to say yeah too. And so by our own admission, by your own admission, you're not a good person. You're just like the rest of us. A lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart. And one day, here's the bad news. One day you'll have to stand before a holy, perfect, moral God who will give you what you deserve as a just judge. Friends, that is terrible news. That is the worst news. I just press into your own life for a second. Are, are you prepared to stand before that holy God with your record of sin with you? Ah, but remember there's good news. If that's the cliff, what's the saving grace? Here's the good news. God sent Jesus with a purpose. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, creating a perfect record of righteousness as to your record, compared to your record of sin. But then Jesus died on a cross. Why in the world would a, a perfect man die on a cross? He would die if God would use him to be a substitute for sinners. You see, when Jesus died, he died in the place of taking the punishment for sinners like you and me. And then they took him down as he was dead. They buried him in a tomb. On the third day, he rose again, which showed that God accepted that sacrifice. And here's the wonderful good news of the gospel. Jesus says that if you would turn away from your sin and you would turn to Jesus, that he would give you his record of righteousness, he would take your record of sin, he'd pay for it on the cross, die in your place, be raised to a new life and give you eternal life if you would turn away from sin and trust in him. That's the best news in the world. And notice Jesus says in verse 24, whoever, including any of you today, hears my word and believes him who sent me, that person has eternal life. Like right now. And it gets even better. Verse 24. This person does not come into judgment. Do you know how stressful it is to be in line at the airport going through security I gotta make sure I got my passport you get up to the counter and it's kind of scary looking at him in the eye because you feel like a terrorist all of a sudden <laughs> just hope there's not a problem like, let me get all my things out of my pockets and I hope they don't have to pull me aside to scan me and everyone's looking around with skeptical eyes and, oh, my bag's getting pulled aside. I, what did I forget that I, I left in it? I hope that they don't 
catch something that I forgot and the guys are like, keep moving, liquids out, eyes straight ahead, let's go. And you're like just moving ahead like cattle in a trailer. <laughs> you're just hoping that they don't find anything. That's a little exaggerated. But oh how stressful it must be on judgment day to stand before God and you got your bag with you and it's full of the lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart past. And it's about to be scanned. You're sweating bullets. And you get to the front and Jesus grabs you and pulls you under his arm and says, wait a second, this one, he's with me. And he has full clearance to avoid all that judgment. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, whoever trusts in him, they do not come into judgment. And listen, Jesus doesn't get you through the judgment of security by saying, just don't look in the bag. Jesus gets you through because he paid for your bag and he gave you his which when they open it they find glorious righteousness oh how good our savior is and Jesus says if you would believe that right now eternal life would be yours right now doesn't matter what anybody knows sitting right beside you if you would pray right now God I believe Jesus did that for me eternal life right now you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want eternal life, believe the gospel. We turn to our final point. And you might be thinking, is this a resurrection sermon or what? Here we go. Our final point we see in the section is this. If you want to see the power of Jesus, look at the weakness of death. You want to see the power of Jesus, look at the weakness of death. This comes from Jesus' final truly, truly statement. Look in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given himself, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice's voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I do not have time today to double click on every point I want to in this section. Here's what I want you to focus on. In this section, we see a reference to two hours. Two periods of time when something is going to happen. Look at first, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. The second one is verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. The first hour is happening right now. It's here. The second hour is still to come. Verse 28, for an hour is coming. One's now, one's future. Question is, what's happening in each hour? Well, the first one, verse 25, an hour is coming, it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. 
What does it mean when it says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live? You're thinking, um, I don't see any dead people walking around at this voice of Christ. But Jesus says the hour is right now when the dead will hear his voice and live. So what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about what Ephesians chapter 2 describes in detail. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul is writing there and he talks about your and mine spiritual condition apart from Christ, apart from God, how everyone is born. Ephesians 2, 1 says this, and you were dead, there's the language, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what does, it look like, what does it look like to be dead in our sins and trespasses? He tells us, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. See, Paul talks about everybody's just walking around. And we're obviously living. But these dead people spiritually are living, way, living in ways according to the world. They're following the prince of the power of Satan. They're, they're living according to the passions of their flesh. And Paul describes these people like this. He says they're dead. They're like spiritual zombies. Dead in their sin, dead to God, wanting nothing to do with him. But then something miraculous happens. He goes on in Ephesians 2 verse 4. It says, but God, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive made us alive together with Christ. So we went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, wanting God, loving Christ, turning away from the world. Friends, this is the first hour that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 5, verse 25. He's talking about this great spiritual awakening. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is not an audible voice. This is a quickening of the Spirit. So that when you hear the gospel, like I just shared with you a moment ago, when you hear it, you've probably heard it a thousand times. But there's in that one time that it makes sense. People describe it as like a light bulb moment. Maybe just a minute ago for you, you're like, Jesus did that for me. And I trusted in him for the first time then. That's when you heard the voice of the Son of God and you lived. Going from death to life. But the second hour, Jesus mentions, look at verse 28. We're almost finished. Do not marvel at this. But an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. You say, that sounds pretty literal to me. Coming out of tombs sounds quite physical. Are dead bodies really, literally going to break the ground and come out of graves? Jonas read 1 Thessalonians 4 earlier. And that passage describes this second hour in vivid detail. I invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I promise we're almost done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. There Paul is talking about the great second coming of Jesus. Jesus is really going to come again one day. And Paul tells us what's going to happen when it does. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, meaning those who are still living when Jesus splits the sky and comes again, we who are still alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You know, sometimes people say, boy, I hope I'm still living when Jesus comes back because that's going to be awesome to see. Well, Paul says, when he comes, we who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we won't get to see something that they don't get to see. Why? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and catch this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What will cause the bodies to break through the casket, through the vault, through the ground? A simple voice of Jesus, the command. Just as his word gives spiritual life now, one day his physical command will bring the dead physically back to life. And this, just real quick, this is so neat, I think. How does Paul know this? How does he know to say this in 1 Thessalonians? Well, he starts out in verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, meaning from the mouth of Jesus. Where in the world did Jesus ever speak of this? How about John chapter 5, verse 28, where he says, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs hear the, his voice and come out. So right now, all across the world, people are being brought back to life spiritually. Hearing the gospel, the dead, crusty, stony, lifeless hearts being made new. And one day, every single body buried in dirt or tomb, every body lost in sea or fire, every body will be raised at the final call of Jesus. You think, man, that's weird. I don't care. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> for the spiritually dead now, for the physically dead then, what causes new life to come back? The power of Jesus' call. And notice that it's nothing for him. You want to see the power of Jesus? Look at the weakness of death. Look at how weak death is under the command of Christ. Just as darkness was overcome at the very beginning of creation with the word of Christ saying, let there be light. Just as Lazarus was overcome by the call of Jesus to come out. Listen, death crumbles under the pulsating powerful call of Christ for the dead to live. And this is why his resurrection matters. This is what Jesus accomplished when he died and then when he rose, death lost its grip. The, on the morning when his eyes opened, the business of death closed. Jesus could have died a thousand deaths. Could have been in a tomb guarded by a, a, a thousand stones with thousands of soldiers around it. But listen, come Sunday morning, it wouldn't have mattered because he was coming out. Because compared to the power of Jesus, death is weak. 
under the power of Jesus, death is mocked. And through the work of Jesus, death is finished. I'll close with this, but oh Christians, if you've trusted in Jesus today, oh how we need to live in light of this reality. Oh how we should grieve in this victory. How we should live in light of the resurrection. I walked across the street this week as I was preparing this message and I walked in our cemetery. And it was powerful to think on the words of Jesus as I'm looking at all the headstones. An hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. Brothers and sisters, you have family members and friends across the street who one day at the command of Christ, when he splits the sky, they will split the ground and their bodies will meet him in the air. Because no dirt, tomb, grave, death is powerful enough to hold back that which Christ calls to come near. If you want to know the power of Jesus, look at the weakness of death. Now, I almost said let's pray but maybe 30 seconds more because I almost left off the last part because of time, but I just can't. I want you to notice when the bodies are raised on the last day, not everyone will enter into the resurrection of life. Verse 29 says they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That verse deserves a whole sermon but just briefly, this is not teaching that your destination ultimately in life or judgment is ultimately decided by how good or bad you were. I mean, verse 24 makes it clear. Eternal life is given to those who hear the word of Christ and believe. Other texts in scripture make it clear. That's not what this is teaching. One commentator put it like this. Good works here function as evidence of true faith. And if good works are lacking, they show an absence of true faith. Here's the point I want to leave you with. Jesus says on that final day, for some, it will be too late. They would have died in their sins, not trusting him in this life. And whether they like it or not, when he calls, all the bodies will be raised and they will either go to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment for all eternity. That's why how you respond to Jesus right now matters. Because an hour is coming when it'll be too late. When it will simply be too late. What will you do with Jesus right now? Let's pray. Jesus, we give you praise as God. give you praise as the one who speaks and life starts flowing. Would you be so kind to blow life in this room? 
Would you be so kind to speak and cause dead hearts to be new? It would bring you great glory. Would you be kind to do it? We thank you for the resurrection that you have displayed in visible history. And we look forward to experiencing final resurrection with you. In Jesus' name, amen.